everybody has a story. Uh, everybody has uh, victories. Everybody has some difficulties and some trials. But sometimes it's, it's interesting as a church how we can be, in many ways, just completely unaware of somebody and what their trial is and what they're going through and what their family's going through. When we feel like, like ours is so big and so important and nobody else understands, you know, uh, uh, she, she mentioned that it's been a, a crazy year. At the same time, you know, she's, she's fallen in love. She has a fiance. They get married this year. But all of these, hey, Matt, you guys can give him a hand. Uh, but I just, I just considered it a, a, a major source of encouragement as she's talking about what they're going through. While we were all doing Jericho, uh, that's when they were trying to hear from the doctors whether or not they were going to give this transplant. And, uh, and just hearing from God, praying, getting into the scriptures, not knowing what to do, but, but feeling led in certain ways. I was just so blessed when she, when she came and she told me uh, some of the things that were going on that I asked her to share. So I appreciate you, Megan, coming up and doing that today. And we can all uh, commit to, uh, to just keeping you, your family, your mom in our prayers. Amen? Amen, amen. amen. Um, so it's good. Uh, it's going to lead us into uh, our new series that we're going to be starting this morning. Um, and I want to give you a little bit of background and foundation for, for what we're going to be looking at and what we're going to be covering these next few weeks. Uh, in my spirit, I've been sensing some dissipation lately in our church, and I've been praying about why is that happening. Uh, when I say dissipation, think about spraying cologne or spraying perfume, and when you're at home and you first put it on, it's strong. Somebody say amen. And you're, you're choking yourself, and you're thinking, man, I'm going to choke everybody around me. But by the time the end of the day comes, you can't smell it at all anymore. You're trying to find something to put a couple sprays underneath your armpits or something because it's dissipated. What was strong and what was significant, what you could smell and what others could smell, has begun to dissipate and lose its potency. So the opposite of dissipation is concentration. Right? So I'm praying in our church for... Uh, potency. I'm praying for concentration, and I ask the Lord, well, then what contributes to dissipation? What is it that happens that in a church, in a body, in a family, whatever it is, would cause things to lose that potency, lose that concentration? How does that happen, Lord? A lot of times with our issues, I think Jericho reminds us of this, instead of just focusing on the problem or the results or the effects of the problem, you have to actually try to figure out how it starts. What are the contributing factors? So one of the things that God keeps putting on my heart, keeps putting on my mind, uh, is the danger of forgetting our purpose. Say purpose. purpose. He says that there's a danger in forgetting what you're actually doing, what your actual purpose is. We can know what we're doing and forget why we're doing it. It's true in the life of an individual and it's true in the life of a church. As we go through this series, it's going to continue to come up. I think you'll begin to see it more clearly, but I believe it's vital to not, not only uh, know what you're doing, but know why you're doing it. Understanding the purpose behind the things that you do on a daily basis, understanding the purpose of the things that we do as a church week after week, month after month. I'm going to share a lot of things with you during this series, but the one thing I want to tell you up front, I got a lot of goals, and I got a lot of things that God has shared with me that I feel like we just really need to, to dig into with this series. But the one I'm going to share with you up front is just so you can understand 
how vitally important this series is to us as a church. Um, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be wiping our calendar clean for the month of September. There won't be any of the ministries that we've all grown to love and that we look forward to, many of the things that we do. Uh, that means women's Bible studies, men's Bible studies, uh, feeding friends, outreach, prayer services, um, our 31 status, our, our uh, children's church, whatever outings. Everything's getting, get, going to be wiped off the calendar for the month of September because we have to remember why we're doing what we do, not just what it is that we do. Somebody say amen. amen. That's significant. We've never done that as a church. We've been around for eight years here now in the city, and we believe in what we do. We believe in why we do it, but I, build, I feel that it's important for us to remember and everybody to know and have an understanding of our purpose, what's most important, what's most valuable. As we do this, I want you to evaluate yourselves in the month of September in the areas of attendance and in the areas of engagement. So one of the things I feel is that oftentimes what happens to us is we get so busy and there's so many things going on, we forget why we're doing what we do. It's hard to evaluate. I really want to encourage you. During the month of September, there's no excuses. I want you to look at your life, look at your walk, look at your engagement with the church and say, am I there? Am I engaged? Am I participating? When I do show up, am I really receiving what it is that God wants for me to receive or am I just doing the next thing? It's important. It's important to me. Not only when it comes to the church this month, I want you to also look at your home life, your personal life, husbands and wives. Check your attendance. Check your engagement. Are you just home together or are you engaged with one another? Are you there for each other or are you just there? As parents, as friends, we as a church are active, we're intentional, and we are externally focused. What that means is we're busy. <laughs> we do a lot of things here. We stay busy. We stay active, right? We, uh, we are externally focused, which means we don't just say, what are we doing within these four walls, and how can we make this better, that better? No. We go out into the community. We go out into the city, and we try to affect change. We pray with people. We feed people. We talk to people. We let our Christianity try to be truly a light in the world. It gives us what I believe is a, a unique identity. It's not that there's no other churches that do what we do. It's just that we are one of those that are called to do those things. It's a different kind of identity. But the way that we live as a church, it increases the possibility of dissipation. It also decreases the ability for us to clearly see it happening. This is what that means. Because we're so busy and we're so active and we're doing so many things and we're going so many places, it's easy to lose potency because we're so spread thin. And on top of that, it's easy not to notice it happening. You'll be going through things and all of a sudden you'll look up and you'll be like, hey, have you seen so-and-so for a couple weeks? What happened to what's-her-name? What happened to that one couple? What happened to that teenager? I saw the group and has anybody contacted that young man? Have we seen him? We're so active and our identity is, is tied together with that and we are trying to move and do the things that God wants us to do. But we can be so tired and so busy that we forget some of the things that are so critical and so important. So I want you to look at this series and, and kind of put it in these terms. We're going to reverse engineer our identity. We are going to search 
for the actual DNA that produces the identity, right? So you know who you are. We know who you are. We know who we are as a church. We know what our identity is. But we need to get away from just that outside identity and go back to the DNA. Who is it that makes us who we are? Who is it that has set the course for us? Who is it that is filling us and charging us and empowering us to do whatever it is that we're called to do? It's not what we do, but why we do it. It's not where you're going, but why you're going there. I think this is important for us as a church moving forward. I think it's important for you as an individual. So we're going to pray. Lord, we thank you for just the fact that we're here this morning. We thank you for whatever the circumstances and situations are in our life, Lord. Just as Megan shared this morning, Lord, we desire that your will would be done and that whether prior to or during or after, we can look back and see your hand upon our lives, Lord. This morning, our desire as we begin this series, Father, is that we would truly understand our purpose, that we would know not only what we're doing, but why we're doing it, Lord God, that when we get to these places and we get to these spots or points in our lives and in our relationships, Lord, that we would do more than just be there, but we would be engaged, we would be aware, we would see your plan and your purposes unfolding, Father. We ask that during this season and during this series, during this month of September, Lord God, that you would calm our hearts, that you would refocus us, Lord, that we wouldn't just be busybodies, but we would be uh, intentional and effective in all the things that we do, Lord God. We need you more than we need anything else, Lord. Have your way. We love you and we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So our series is going to be called The Essentials. The Essentials. In life, there are things that are essential, and there are things that are secondary. There are things that are primary, and there are things that are just off to the side, still important, but not essential. For instance, in a marriage, there's a million things you have to do. There's a million places you have to be, and if you're a man, a million things you have to apologize for, and all that stuff is important. However, I would say that it's essential to actually come home every day. Imagine apologizing for everything, being everywhere you're supposed to be, but you never come home. Your relationship is going to fail because those other things are not essential. Being physically there with your husband and with your wife is essential. Some would say having a relationship with God, coming together to be in church, going in the same direction spiritually is essential for a family and for a marriage. We all get to decide, though, what's essential and what's not. The definition of essential, number one, is a thing that is absolutely necessary. Number two is the fundamental elements or characteristics of something. What's fundamental? What's foundational? What, is, what has to be there, and if it's not there, it falls apart? To this podium or to this platform, what's essential is the base. If I take the base off, it doesn't matter how nice it is or how sturdy it is, it's going to fall over. We could take the top off and it'll still stand because it's not essential. The foundation is essential. In the church, in Christianity, in your walk, there are things that are essential. If you find yourself weebling and wobbling, falling over, unstable, unsuccessful, unfruitful, maybe it's the essentials that really need to be considered. Our foundation so that's the question that we're going to try to answer. What are the essentials for God's church? What are the essentials for this church? Say this church. We're going to look at the Protestant Reformation and the eventual 
breaking away from the Catholic Church as a guide for focusing on what's essential. Um, in 1517, Martin Luther, he wrote down these things that he said, listen, we've got to talk about this. We've got to discuss this. He went to the leaders of the Catholic Church and he says, listen, these things are essential. These things are important. We have to evaluate what we're doing, what we're teaching. He nailed it to the door of the church and it's called the 95 Theses because it had 95 points that he wanted to talk, talk about and discuss. Luther sparked what we now call like a great awakening and it was a desire for everyone to know the word of God and understand the word of God. He's saying, look, there's so many people that we are teaching and we are preaching. They don't know what it actually says. They're, they're unable to, to be confirmed that they are being led in the right direction. And he couldn't take it anymore. He said, these things are essential. Everything else we're doing is not necessarily essential. As I was reading this, this book or reading this story about the Protestant Reformation, it reminded me of this movie called The Book of Eli. Anybody seen the movie The Book of Eli? Amen. All you moviegoers, put down those movies, pick up your Bible. I saw it too, though. Anyway, this movie is about kind of this post-apocalyptic uh, uh, world, right? There's been this nuclear war, and all the, all the survivors are left over, and one important part is that all the books are being burned, right? So this one guy is looking for books, and he has his, his people go out and try to bring these books back in. But really the book that he's looking for is the Bible. And he's looking for it because he believes this. It's powerful, and it has the ability to control people's lives. So he's trying to find it because he's saying, what will give me the authority on earth is if I can find this book, harness its power, not let them be educated and know what it actually says, tell them what it says so that I can shift it, change it, use it to my advantage, right? And then bring all these people under my, underneath my authority. The reason why I thought about that with the Protestant Reformation is that's what Martin Luther was saying. He's saying, listen, because these people are biblically illiterate, because they don't know what it says, but they do know they want God, what we've done is we've taken the word, we've put it into languages that they can't understand, then we tell them what it says, but we're not really telling them what it says. He's saying it's essential that they have the word of God. And you know what happens when an illiterate, biblically illiterate group of people that don't know what the word of God says, but want to love God, you know what happens when they get a hold of this book? The power goes to the people. There's no pope that can tell you what's right and what's wrong because you have it for yourself. There's no pastor that, you, that can tell you what you have to do and what you, ha what you don't have to do because the power is in your own hands. It was a dramatic change in the life of God's people and God's church. People began to say, well, why can't I read it? Why can't I understand it? Why can't I ask questions? From that Protestant Reformation, we get um, what we're going to look at in this series. It's called the five solas, and we're going to use those as the framework for our series. The first is solas Christus, which is Christ alone, sola gratia, which is grace alone, sola fide, which is faith alone, sola scriptura, which is scripture alone, and soli deo gloria, which is all glory to God. So out of this Protestant Reformation, all these things that happened, what, 
what the men and women of God came up with is these are the essentials. You can do whatever else you want to do. Your church can look how it wants to look. You can have whatever structure you want. But if you don't have these things right, it's all going to fall apart. Not only for our church, but for your life. If you get these things wrong, it all falls apart. Which is why what I've decided to do is there's nothing else happening in this church except for getting these things right. And to me, it's valuable for us as a church, and it's valuable for you as an, as an individual follower of Christ. So I thought all glory to God is a perfect place to begin our series. All glory to God. If we, get, if we get one thing right, I want to make sure we get this thing right. How many of you enjoy worship? Praise the Lord. How many of you, don't raise your hand, are worshiping God or seeking that enjoyment? You see the difference? I love worship, and I love the way that it makes me feel. I love that it brings me to tears. I love that I can come to the altar. I love that I can lift up my voice and raise my hands. I love that uh, I can hear singers leading me in worship. I love all of that. But it's at its base, it's supposed to be giving glory to God. And you see how just the way you look at worship, it changes what worship is? Is it about me? Is it about how I feel? Is it about the release that I get? Is it about the burdens falling off of me? Or is it to give glory to God for who he is and what he's done? Now apply that to every area of your life and see if it's essential. See if we've got it right. You know, Mary said it. She said, God wants you to be able to have coffee with a friend, go out to dinner, put your kids in sports, do all those things. Praise the Lord, he does. But primarily, he wants you to honor him with your finances first because that's the essential part of finances. Secondary is all the other things you get to do with your 90%. What's essential is honoring God, the one who has given it to you. All glory to God. First one, soli deo gloria. Uh, Isaiah 42, verse 8, says this. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. That's Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. So one of the essentials in the church is understanding that all glory belongs to God. All glory. Not some glory, not most glory, not uh, uh, the first of the glory. All of the glory belongs to God. He says, I'm God, I'm the Lord, it is my name, it's who I am, and I will not share. I will not give it to other people. The glory is not for us, it's for me, he says. So this leaves us with... An important question that we need answered, and it also establishes a fact that we have to consider. The question is this, what is the glory of God? If he says it's his, and he says he won't share it, we better know what it actually is. The fact that it establishes, the fact that he has to even say this establishes this, that somehow, somewhere, someone is trying to take the glory of God for themselves. It's a fact. He wouldn't have to say it, and we wouldn't be going through some of the things that we're going through if that wasn't the case. So what is the glory of God, and why is it that someone is trying to seek that glory and obtain it for themselves? So the glory, Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, should go up for you. Psalm 19, 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. We're trying to paint a picture. I'm going to run through a couple of scriptures for you. Say the glory of God. Glory of God. What is it? Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 11.7 says, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And it says that a man is actually the image and the glory of God. If you read through the rest of 1 Corinthians 11, what it's talking about is this hierarchy. It says that, um, uh, that the glory of woman is man, the glory of man is Christ, and the glory of Christ is God. There's something about the image of man being the glory of God. The heavens declaring the glory of God. Exodus 33:15, another picture of this glory. God said to him, if your, or excuse me, Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, say presence. presence. We're talking glory. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that if you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. Then God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here's a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be that while my glory, say glory. glory. It shall be that while my glory passes by, that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So there's a ton of scriptures on the glory of God. But these three, I think, paint a good enough picture for us this morning. Number one, he says, when you walk outside and you look up into the heavens and you see the stars, you see the moon, you see the sun, that same sun that you get frustrated and that you are sweating by, that's the same sun that is keeping people who are homeless and hungry warm enough to stay alive. He's saying, you can see my glory by the heavens. They declare who I am and how powerful I am, right? Then he says, you see my glory in the people around you. A man or a woman is actually the glory of God. It's the image and glory of God is revealed. Then with Moses, he says, it's my actual presence. The light that proceeds forth from me, it's so glorious that if you were to actually see it, it would burn you into non-existence. The greatness of the glory of God is what he wants us to understand this morning. His power, his authority, his image, his light. It's glorious. So how is it possible that someone other than God would seek his glory and try to claim it as their own? Once you know what it is, or once you even have an idea of what it is, how is it possible that people want that glory and try to obtain it? Martin Luther saw that the church had so significantly elevated the blessed mother of Christ that she was taking glory from him. He saw that the pope and the bishops and the hierarchy in the church had so significantly elevated themselves that they were taking or trying to take what? Glory from God. And he couldn't take it anymore. 
Listen to these. There's 95 theses. These are just three of them. Number one, number two, and number six. Listen to what he's actually saying and think about glory. Thesis number one, he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It goes with number two. It says, this word, this idea of repentance, cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance that is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Listen. Listen what that means. Martin Luther is saying this. Jesus said, repent. Your whole life, everything I've done, every sin I've committed, I renounce it. I, I deny it. I'm, I apologize, Lord. Please forgive me. And then Martin Luther says, what we've done is we've made people believe that repentance and that crying out to God is actually penance with a pope or a priest. That you come to me, you confess your sins, and I absolve you. He's saying, we do not stand in the place of God, and we cannot have his glory. He's the only one that gets to absolve sin. He's the only one that people need to come to. Can you imagine the church, because they're illiterate and ignorant, just like we are in a lot of ways today in the church, but people have been taught to believe that you come to a man who represents God. I'm not just the image and glory of God. No, I stand in the place of God, and I have the authority and the ability to absolve you of your sins. No, that's God's glory. It doesn't belong to me, and it doesn't belong to any other priest or pastor or anybody else. He's writing these things down in the year 1517. The church has been living and breathing for 1,500 years, and it's still got some of the essentials wrong. Number six, he says this, the Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring and showing that it has been remitted by God. They wanted to kill this man. He's saying all these things. He's taking the power out of the hands of those who have, have tried to claim it. And he's saying, look, we don't have that authority. We don't have that power. You can't remit sins. You can't absolve people. You can't do any of that stuff. I didn't grow up Catholic. I watched my wife grow up in something that's similar to Catholicism, Coptic Orthodox Christianity, sitting on separate sides of the church, going to the priest or the abuna for everything, having to make confession, having to do communion. Um, uh, there's all these things, but it's just, it's not biblical. And it's not essential. And what ends up happening to people is when they believe that, they get led astray when they think they're being led to God. How is it possible that someone other than God would seek his glory and try to claim it as their own? I believe it's because God's glory is put on display, not only in the world through the heavens declaring it, but also it's put on display in our lives when he does things in our lives. This is Genesis chapter 28, verse 15. It's a story about Jacob. It says this, Behold, I'm with you. I'll keep you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. That's God speaking to Jacob. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Read the story in Genesis chapter 28, but listen to what Jacob's saying. God speaks these things into his life, and he wakes up from this vision, from this experience, from this intimacy with God. He says, God's here. This is his glory. It's amazing. I feel it. I taste it. I touched it. It affected me. It impacted me. 
And I didn't even know it. I'm right here in the presence of God. His glory. When you encounter God, there should be this sense of awesomeness. That's what, that's what Jacob is explaining here. Coming into the presence of God and being in awe. You can't believe that he's real. You can't believe that he's there. You can't believe that he cares about you. You can't believe that he just made all these promises to you. But here's the thing. These promises that God made to Jacob in this story, they're going to be played out in the years of his life, in the fruitfulness of his life, in the success of Jacob's life. And then the glory of God is going to be put on display for everyone to see. Why is that important? What does that mean? When the world looks at Jacob and they see that he became a people, they became 12 tribes, one of his sons ended up being the number two man in the most powerful nation on the planet. They turned into as numerous as the number of sand on the seashore. When they look at that, they are not automatically going to give glory to God. They're going to look at Jacob and say, you're so amazing and you're such a good father and you're such a good grandfather and look at what you've done, look at what you accomplished. How did you do this? You know what they're not going to recognize about Jacob? is that it started with him running away from his brother because he was scared and was going to be murdered. They're not going to recognize that he had multiple wives when he shouldn't have. They're not going to recognize that he wasn't a very good father and that his kids were doing crazy things, including attempted murder and successful murder. But Jacob, when he looks back at his life, like, like Megan said, you look back and you see what God's done. When Jacob looks back at his life, all he can cry out is, Glory to God. It's all God. It's all his glory. I'd have nothing if it wasn't for him. Nobody knows what I've really been through. Nobody knows who I really am. Nobody really knows my heart, what God had to do to produce the things that he's produced. But it's so easy for us when we get to that point where people see some good things to try to take the glory. He knows he's unworthy of praise. What you and I do as Christians is we make Christian statements like, it's all God. How many of you have said that? Somebody comes up to you, hey, this, that, and the other, you're like, oh, you know what, it's all God. Somebody tells you about what's going on in your family or your friends or you at work, oh, you know what, if it wasn't for God, none of this would be happening. The question I have this morning for you, the question I have for me, the question I have for our church is, when we say that, do we really understand that everything that is being accomplished in our lives is truly his work. It's really him doing all those things and he's doing it for his glory. Do we really understand that this morning? Do we really live that way? There's nothing good in your life, there's nothing good in my life that is not the work of God that he is accomplishing for his own glory. That's tough. Philippians 2.13 puts it like this. It is God who works in you both to will and to do, to do for his good pleasure. It's saying even the best things that you have going on, the best things that you're doing, the most successful you are, it's God working in you to do those things, to want to do them and to do them, and he's doing it for his pleasure and his glory. That's such a different perspective on life. <laughs> and why does God do that? Is he doing that because he's proud? He needs the glory. He needs to be seen as special. 
He does that and he wants the glory because he uses that glory to bring other people unto himself. It's not even about you. He's saying, I do all these things in your life so that my glory will shine forth. And when you give me the glory, I can use that to bring others unto me. The same way that I use the stars and the, and the sky and the moon to, to declare my glory so that people will pursue me. The same way that I gave you an ocean where we just want to go to the beach and surf or swim or do whatever it is that we do, put our feet in and act like we did something. He's like, no, I put that there so when you show up and you get onto the sand, you can look out and say, dang, it's everlasting. It's never ending. It's so powerful. I have no authority. I have no chance to control this. I wonder who does have authority. I wonder who does control this. I wonder who set the limits on this ocean so that people can have million-dollar homes right here on the rocks and they don't get washed away. He puts his glory on display so that people will seek him. So why is that important to us as a church? Why is that important to you as an individual? Why is all glory being given to God essential? In this church, I've seen amazing, amazing things happen in the last eight years. People that you wouldn't think would give their lives to the Lord have given their lives to the Lord. Addicts have been set free. Marriages have been restored. Forgiveness and reconciliation has taken place. Uh, uh, an amazing, eclectic kind of group of just special and different people have come together and fallen in love with each other. It's been amazing. It's been a great thing to witness and to even be a part of. But now, for some reason, more than ever, it seems like we seem to be getting a lot of congratulations and people being aware of us and people saying, hey, that's awesome and that's special and, and wanting to know what we're doing or how we're doing it. <clears throat> Why they're aware of some kind of fruitfulness here. And it's so easy, instead of giving glory to God, to begin to talk about what we're doing. When people begin to say these things, it's so easy to say, oh, let me tell you about our Wednesday night Bible study. Do you know that for eight years we've been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, that we did the whole New Testament from John on, then we went into the Old Testament. Do you know for eight years we've been doing that? It's so easy to begin to say, you know what, we have powerful women's ministries. We've got 31 status. We've got a women's Bible study. They're here in the church. They're out in the community. They're impacting the world. They're actually fellowshipping and just doing girl stuff that they like to do. They go to dinner. They get their nails done, whatever it is. It's easy to talk about that. It's easy to say, hey, let me tell you about our children's church, that they're not just being babysat, that they have a director, that they have uh, visions, that they do plays, that they learn the word of God, that many of them are saying things that, we don't even know whether they come up with this stuff, that they're being filled with the Spirit of God. It's very easy to start to talk about what we're doing instead of what God is doing. See, it's easy to look at the Catholic Church and say, oh, how could they do that with Mary? How could they do that with the Pope and try to take God's glory? But it's easy for you and it's easy for me and it's easy for any church to do the same thing. God's not doing those things so that we can boast about what we're doing. He's doing so that we could give him the glory and he can do more of what he wants to do. Let's talk about why we go out and feed people and why we go out and pray with people. See, when nobody on the outside is taking notice of what God's doing in this church, when nobody on the outside is taking notice of what God's doing in your life, it's easy to give him glory. Because it's just us together. It's just you and your family. It's like, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for what you're doing. But as soon as somebody from the outside recognizes, we want to tell them what our part is in the successes. 
When they look at you and your marriage is good, you want to tell them, well, you know, I started doing this and I started doing that and, you know, you know she started doing this and that's kind of what happened. No, come on now. Shut up with that. <laughs> God did that. You had it broken and jacked up for the whole time and then as soon as you came to God, he started doing re restoration. Megan talked about her parents and the situation that they're going through. You know, at the end of this, let's, let's fast forward a year, two years, they could easily say, oh, you know what, we just got to the point in our relationship, we said, why are we living like this? Let's just start really engaging and loving each other. No, what happened was they went through a time where God put them in a position where their only hope was him, and he brought restoration. I believe that God is about to continue to do what he's always done in this church, which is expand us and grow us and move us forward. But I also believe that's why it's so critical what we're doing this month of September because if we don't understand this essential principle of giving all glory to God, it'll be for nothing and it'll fall apart. And what we're desiring to see happen and be a part of happening uh, will be wasted because we want the glory, because we want to be seen. I'm telling you this is significant as, as a church, it's significant as an individual, because you do, you want to, you see it, you feel it, you want to uh, be acknowledged to a certain degree, you want people to see what's happening in the lives of people, but you know what? Just give all glory to God. Just make sure that anything that we do as a church from this point forward is all focused on the source. It's God for his good pleasure. <clears throat> What a great opportunity we have this month to focus on essentials, to focus on glory being given to God, to actually think about how we give glory to God. Think about the ministries and why God deserves the glory. Think about how we need to pray to him so that we can give him the glory. <clears throat> We have to prepare ourselves to give God glory, to discuss the church and what's going on here. When people ask about it, that feeling that people get when they come into this church of love and relationship and closeness, all that kind of stuff, you, know, you have to actually think about it and prepare yourself to give God glory for that. If there's one thing that people have consistently said when they come into this church is, you know what, those people were real, they were genuine, I felt like they cared about me, they said hello to me, they loved on me, that's what you hear all the time, and I'm telling you, you have to prepare to give God glory for that. Otherwise, you could do what many of us have done. Oh, we just love each other. We're just good people. We've always been nice like this, knowing that we don't act like this with our regular friends and family. <laughs> no, you got to prepare to give God glory. You have to prepare to be able to say, you know why you feel that way when you come here? It's not us. It's not our systems. It's not what we do. What it is is you've come to the place that the Lord dwells, just like Jacob did in Genesis 28 when he woke up and he said, I'm in the house of the Lord. I didn't even know it. I've come to a place where I can feel his power, his presence, and his glory. You need to be able to tell people that's what you're feeling. It's not me. It's not that I'm nice. It's not that these people are super nice. No, you are in a place where the Lord dwells. And he deserves the glory for the way that you're feeling right now. So that's the church. What about you as an individual when it comes to God's glory? This is Luke chapter 17, verse 11. Speaking of Jesus, he says, It happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, 
Master, have mercy on us. They're lepers. They can't even come close. Their sin is on the outside instead of inside. It's not that their leprosy is their sin, but if that makes sense, our sins are on the inside so we can go up to whoever we want and act like it's all good. You know, like an unfaithful man can walk up to his wife because she can't see the sin, right, and be close to her. Imagine if your sin was on the outside where she could see your unfaithfulness, right, where your friends could see the lies that you're telling them as they come out of your mouth. That's what it's like to be a leper where there is something about you that separates you from people and it makes you very aware of yourself and your condition. So they see Jesus, they say, Lord, have mercy on us. They can't even come close. They have to cry out. So when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourself to the priest. And so it was that they went. They were cleansed. Or excuse me, so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he returned. And with a loud voice, he glorified God. He fell down on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, where, excuse me, were there not ten that were cleansed? But where are the other nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. See, as an individual, when you come into contact and relationship with Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, you are going to be impacted. You are going to be changed. You are going to be consistently healed. You are going to be transformed. But it's as you go with him, just like it says here. They came to him, they yelled, they screamed, but then he said, go do something. And as they went, that's when they got their healing. It's the same for you and I. If you go with the Lord, you are going to be blessed. healed, changed, and transformed. The question of your impact in this world and the question of how much and how fast you're going to be changed and transformed, it comes down largely to one thing, whether or not you'll give all the glory to God. You want to change fast? Give glory to God. You want to impact a lot of people around you? Give glory to God. You want to change slowly? Act like you're doing something that you ain't really doing. Act like you're responsible for something that you ain't responsible for. You want to not impact the lives of other people around you, your friends, your family, your kids, your spouse? Don't give glory to God for what's happening in your life. And you won't see anything happen in anybody else's life. When we glorify God for empowering us to change, for solidifying the change, for giving us desire and blessings, he takes that glory and he uses it to change the lives of others. But you have to give him the glory. He ain't going to just take it from you. Like, oh, I did that for you, but you want to keep it? All right, you go ahead and keep it. I won't multiply it, and it's going to be a slow process for you. Giving all the glory to God to me is essential for this church, but it has to become more essential for me as an individual and for you as an individual. I'm learning that giving glory to God is not automatic. It's not a foregone conclusion. It doesn't just happen. Let me say that again. Giving glory to God does not just happen. You have to do it on purpose. You have to be intentional. You have to say, here it is. I see it. I'm going to give it to God. I'm going to release it. Like, like Mary said during the offering this morning, you don't just automatically give. God changed you. He transformed you. He healed you. But he doesn't come to your house, grab your wallet, and take his 
You have to give it and you have to be intentional. You have to understand what you're doing and why. I'm giving the glory back to you, Lord. It's the same thing in every other area of our life. When he does things, you have to give the glory to God. And it's not easy. Somebody say amen. It ain't easy in my life. It's not automatic. But it's very, very important. When I think of all of you guys as as your pastor, when I think of the pastor of this church, um, I want us to do the right things for the right reasons. I want us to understand that giving glory to God as a church will accomplish what we really want to accomplish, which is seeing more people come to know him. It's not about the numbers in a church. It's about more people that don't know the Lord coming to know him. And the same thing in your life. When I talk about giving the glory to God in in your individual life, it's not just so that I can say, you know what, I want to make you humble. I want to humble you. It ain't about you. It's about God. It's like, no, I see your broken marriage. And I know that if you give glory to God for what he's done so far, he'll accelerate what he's doing in your marriage. I see your fear over the direction some of our kids are heading. But if you give glory to God for what he's done, he will accelerate what's going on in your family relationships. It's like we have the key. He blesses us. He gives us these things. And for whatever reason, we hold on to the glory. You know that's what happened to to Satan? He wanted God's glory, and that's why he was cast out of heaven. It's the same sins. It's the same problem. And I feel like we're so in love with God and we're so passionate about him that it would be a travesty to lose that hand of God and that blessing of God because we wanted to hold on to glory, even if we didn't know it. Many of us this morning, you may be hearing this for the first time. I've been wrestling with it for a while. But just because you may be hearing it for the first time doesn't mean that you might not be living it for a while. Give the glory to God. It's essential. I want to close with with one last scripture that I'm going to read to you guys about the glory of God. And I'm going to ask the worship team. You guys can come. All glory to God. I'm going to share with you guys a story of glory from John chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. Just, Just focus up. Matter of fact, why don't we stand? I want you to stand and focus up. He says, the heavens declare his glory. He says he will not share his glory. He says his glory is so amazing that he has to actually um, shield us from its full exposure, right? But as an individual, what does that look like for you? Here's a story of glory from John chapter 9. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither. (laughs) This man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's blind. And the, the people, the disciples are saying, look, the only reason that would happen is if somebody sins. Somebody ain't right. Something's wrong. Why is her mother sick? Somebody sinned. Something ain't right. Something's wrong. Why did that person die of cancer? Somebody sinned. Something ain't right. Something's wrong. Jesus says, no, it's not about their sin. They're not sick because of that. They're not blind because of that. They don't have leprosy because of that. They have it because I've orchestrated something that I can use to show my glory. It's there. Because I knew and the Father knew that today I would be walking through this place 
and I would have an ability to show my glory. And because it's there and I'm about to show my glory, you disciples, you have no idea, but 2,000 years from now in this little town called Brea, there's going to be this group of people in a warehouse back room with a loud air conditioner and they're going to be talking about my glory because of this. He says, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. He says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. The night is coming when no one can work, but as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. You got to get on the way. You got to be sent. You got to be going where he told you to go. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. He came back. It's another message. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind, they said, is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he, and others said, he's like him, and he said, I am he. Listen to everything, how it's tying him this morning. He comes back. Because of God's glory, all the people around are seeing the glory. They say, is it him? Is it somebody else? Mary said earlier that when you beg and when you're hungry, God will see you. He'll have compassion and bless you and overflow. It says that he was a beggar. And what did Jesus do? He saw him. He had compassion and he blessed him. And then he says, look, it's me. It ain't somebody else. It's the same one that you saw that was broken and begging. It's me. Verse 10, they said to him, the neighbors... How were your eyes opened? And here comes the first part of the glory. He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received sight. He didn't say I started to change my life. He didn't say I stayed faithful. He didn't say, I, you know, I stayed in the spot that I knew I needed to be in. He said, No, there's this man and his name is Jesus. Everything that you see, everything that has happened, all glory belongs to him. I had nothing to do with this. All I did was do what he told me to do. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I'm I was just blind a few minutes ago. I don't know where he went. <laughs> they brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. And it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. On Wednesday night, we learned about uh, Jesus told the disciples, look, when you go out, you're going to be brought by the people to the church, and the church is going to scourge you. The church is going to kill you. They're going to bring you before kings so you can be murdered. That's what's happening in this story. The people, instead of glorifying God and seeking God, they bring them to the church, the same church that will mislead them, the same church that says the Pope has the ability to absolve you of your sins. Can anybody this morning see the problem with not giving the glory to God and not reading your word for yourself? I don't want to be the only one. Please believe me. I don't want that authority. I don't want that responsibility. I want to just not show up on Sunday so you can say, hey, we're already here. Let's open our Bibles. The Pharisees asked the man again who had received his sight and said to him, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. They're talking about Jesus. Why? Because he did not keep the Sabbath. How is it that the church is going to completely miss it? 
the ones who are responsible for leading you the right direction and we so often completely miss it. He's not from God because he did not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such things? There was a division among them. Didn't Jesus say that in Wednesday night Bible study? I came to bring division. I came to separate you. Husbands and wives are going to have issues because one's going to get saved. Mothers and fathers are going to have issues because their kids are going to give their life to Jesus and say, you know what, I ain't going there no more. I ain't going, I'm not doing what you're doing. I don't care, I'm going with Jesus. And it says the same thing happened here. There was division among the leaders. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about Jesus because he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. They asked the parents saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age. Ask him and he'll speak for himself. For just a, a, another minute or two, listen, stay engaged. Look at these people, the Pharisees and the parents, they're trying to give the glory to anybody but Jesus. The Pharisees are like, it couldn't have been Jesus. Something else happened here. Maybe he's not blind. The parents say, ask him, he'll talk for himself. But listen to why they said that. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. The parents, imagine having a child born with a disability. Imagine having a child born blind. And to watch that child suffer through life with all the difficulties that come along with it. And then when God finally comes and changes it so amazingly and dramatically, you're more concerned with your ability to go in and out of the Jewish synagogue than you are with giving God glory for what he's done. I'm telling you, giving God glory is not as easy as we'd like to think it is. The parents said, he's of age, ask him. They called the man who was blind, and they said to him, give God the glory. How backward is that? He's giving God the glory. He's saying that Jesus did it. The parents aren't doing it. The Pharisees aren't doing it. And the Pharisees say, give God the glory. But they're leading him to someone who's not God. They say, this Jesus, we know that he's a sinner. And listen to, listen to the testimony of the man, the blind man. He answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's a testimony to give God glory. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be able to be a theologian and tell everybody it says here in Genesis chapter 22, verse whatever. No, I know that I was addicted and I've been set free. I know that I was a liar and I've been healed and forgiven. I know that I was unfaithful, but I've been made faithful. I know that I was unworthy, but he's called me valuable and worthy. You have to be able and prepared to give God glory for what he's doing. And if we don't do that as a church, if we don't do that as individual believers, there'll be no impact. They said to him again, last few verses, what did he do to you? How do you open your eyes? He said, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
Do you also want to become his disciple? This man that just had his first encounter with God got healed in a dramatic and amazing way, gives God glory and testimony, and the first day he says, I'm now a disciple of Christ. I ain't an attendee. I ain't visiting the church. I'm following that man. Wherever he goes, that's where I go. Wherever he tells me, that's where I'm going. Whatever he tells me to do, I don't care if he spits on the ground and puts it on my eyes, I'll say, spit on me, Lord. Where do you want me to wash? They said, oh, so now you're a disciple of Christ. We're Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. But this guy, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, why is this so marvelous to you that you don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not hear sinners. This is the, the guy preaching now on day one because he's been laying at a gate in front of a church. He knows God even though he can't see him and he can't read. It's interesting that the book of Eli, when they finally find the Bible, a blind man has it. And it's written in Braille. Because <laughs> God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. That's what the Bible says. So now listen, this blind beggar who nobody knows and has no authority, no impact, no power in the community, he's now the greatest testimony of the power and glory of God, and he's now preaching and teaching the pastors and priests. And it's happened quick. He says, We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will and hears him, he hears him. Since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone Open the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and you're teaching us? Look at the church. I, I feel like I'm telling you guys to, to hate me and not listen to me, but I'm not really trying to say that. But listen, the church tells this man that's coming to the church looking for help, looking for 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 a direction, looking to glorify God and what he's doing. He comes, and the church tells him, you were born in your sins. You ain't like us. You ain't righteous. You ain't called. You ain't important. You're just a sinner. Shut up. But Jesus, God himself, just a few minutes before, what did Jesus say? He wasn't born in sins. This isn't his sin, and it's not his parents' sin. It's completely different than what the church is saying. I wonder what voice we are listening to. I wonder who the authority is in your life. I promise you that I'm going to do my best to teach you the word of God. I'm going to preach it unadulterated. I'm not going to elevate myself or anyone else to the place of God or try to take his glory. But please don't take my word for it. You have your own Bible. The same uh, uh, reformation and passion for the word of God that came forth from Martin Luther and his 95 thesis, that's what the church should look like today. You should be coming to church to get confirmation, not always revelation. Read it for yourself. Speak it for yourself. Let it be alive inside of you. Give God glory and let him just pour his blessings out in your life. I might be telling you that it's because you jacked up and you're full of sin and Jesus is saying, nope, it's for my glory. Give me the glory and watch what else I do. So this is what the church does with that person. They cast him out. How many people are out there in the world hurting because the church cast them out? But Jesus loved them and healed them and brought them to himself, and the church didn't have any room for them. Same way that, that uh, no ends had room for Jesus. They cast him out, 
And Jesus heard that they cast him out. And when Jesus found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Might not sound like much, but when God tells you you've seen him when you've only been seeing for a day, <laughs> it's a big deal. When God tells you, listen, the one that you've been looking for, the one that you now want to worship and you want to love, you don't have to go across the world to find him. I'm right here talking to you. It's a big deal. And what does he do? He says, Lord, I believe, and then he gives him glory. He worshiped him. So as we pray this morning, just remember these two things. Number one, the church giving all glory to God is essential. It's not a side thing. It's not something that I'd like to see here in our church. It's not something I hope develops. If we don't have that, we have nothing. If we won't give glory to God as a church, we will not do anything outside of this church. There will be no other ministries because our focus and our ministry will be on figuring out how to give glory to God because it's all that matters. We have no impact in the world if we go out in our own power, our own authority, and for our own glory. It's essential. We cannot live without it. And for you as an individual, giving all glory to God is also essential. Don't think about ministry. Don't think about participation. Don't think about anything before you consider whether or not you as a, as a follower of Christ are giving all glory unto him. Don't let me guilt you. Don't let me convict you. Don't let me make you feel like you should be doing other things. You know your own heart. You know where you are with the Lord. Give him all the glory and then let those things unfold in your life. As a church and as an individual, we've got to give glory to God. We're going to sing this song. I'm going to pray and release you. But I just feel if you, if you already know that you struggle in this area somehow, some way, or you want to pray that as a church we get this right and we make sure we get it right, I want you to come to the altar and just spend a minute giving glory to God as you come. You can ask for prayer if you want the Lord, if you want, to, you want this kind of experience where you encounter him. I want to pray with you. All that is good. But when you leave your seat, I want you to consider that you're coming to give glory to God. It's not about you. It's not about what you want or what you feel like you need to do. It's about, you know what, I'm taking steps to give glory to God. That's what he wants. So as you come, just be reminded of that, that it's about him. Give him the glory this morning. Lord, we thank you for bringing us this morning. We thank you for rearranging things. We thank you for refocusing us, Lord God. We feel called. We have an identity. There's things that we want to do, places we want to go, people we want to reach, lives we want to touch, hungry that we want to feed, Lord, the cold that we want to clothe. But we want to do it for your glory, not our own. We can only do it for your glory. Show us how to remove ourselves and lift you up. Jesus, you say in your word that if you be lifted up, you will call all men and all women unto yourself. We want to lift you up this morning. We want to thank you at this altar for everything you've done in our lives. Every good and perfect gift you say comes from above, Lord. Watch over us. Get these things right. Let them be essential and foundational, Lord. And then let us be released. We love you. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.